will say this evening I have a very short message. Um, it's really um, probably going to be one of the shortest messages I've ever preached. And I know that that's typically famous last words for a preacher before he gets fired from the pulpit. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but honestly, um, uh, it's, uh, God has laid something very specific on my heart tonight that I want to share with all of you. Um, that I hope you'll be a blessing, but I don't think it'll be long. Um, it's just really um, just a simple truth. Uh, traveling in evangelism is a great privilege. Um, being an evangelist and, and being able to travel the, the country here in America and go to different churches gives you a unique opportunity. It gives you a really unique perspective. And you get the chance to see many, many, many different churches in, in different areas and, and see strengths and weaknesses all over the place. Um, I, I've been with pastors of congregations of um, several thousand people, and I've been in, uh, with pastors with congregations of literally a dozen or so. And the way that they do ministry in different places is different. Um, the way that uh, they, uh, as they, they minister to their own congregations is different. The orders of the services are different. There's so many things that are different, and it gives you a, a unique perspective. But the one perspective that, that really struck me more than anything in my time um, traveling with Dr. Jim and then on my own with my wife was the churches that were prepared for us to come ahead of time and the churches that weren't. As we traveled around, it was amazing to see that some churches, it almost seemed like they hadn't given more than five minutes thought to having a revival meeting other than the phone call that we'd maybe had with them a year before. And there were other churches that had given themselves to prayer, fasting, and had been looking for God to do something specific before we got there. Tonight, pastors asked me to speak on the subject of how to prepare for a revival. And as we look at this passage in Joshua chapter 3, I hope that tonight you'll open your heart to what God has to say to all of us, myself included. In Joshua chapter 3 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan, he and all of the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests of the Levites bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that she may know the way by which she must go. For ye have not passed this way hitherfore. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Let's go to God in prayer tonight. Lord, tonight we sit in a congregation of people that love you with all of their heart, in a city and a state that for the most part compared to the rest of the country has the gospel in most places where the majority of people around us have grown up in some type of a Sunday school or been on a bus somewhere at a ministry. They've had a grandfather or grandmother that was faithful in church. 
And yet, Lord, as we look around our world today, and even just simply across our street, we see so many people that while they know about what church maybe is, and they've heard about Jesus, they don't know the saving knowledge of you. They're lost in their sin. And Lord, as we sit here tonight in this church building, Lord, our, our hearts break for the world around us and we yet are at a loss of what it is that we need to do to see a change. Lord, are we willing to change, to see a change? And so, God, tonight as we just look at your word, I pray that you would teach us what it means to prepare. And, Lord, I ask that you would use your word in the coming days to change us so that the world could be changed. We love you, God, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said that for every revival that has ever happened, there was someone who was expecting it. I'll say that one more time. It's been said before that for every single revival that's ever taken place on this planet, that there was someone, a person, a human being, that was expecting it. Why? Because there was somebody that was praying for it. On Sunday morning, July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards stepped into the pulpit of his small church in North Hampshire, Massachusetts. At that time, he stood up to preach his now famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. For those of you that are familiar with this sermon, you know about what Jonathan Edwards did. It was not a, a complicated message. He stood up and he literally read, we're told, his text. He wasn't a bombastic, dynamic preacher. Jonathan Edwards was an incredibly intelligent man. He was brilliant. But, but he didn't stomp around the pulpit like a Billy Sunday. He didn't slide around or wave his arms or his hands or jump up and down. That wasn't his style. That wasn't who he was. He simply stood up and he was a wordsmith. He was very good at putting together um, just the right phrases and words and creating what we would call very vivid imagery. He could take um, his sermons and really get you to see a picture of what he was talking about. And as he stood up in church that day in uh, his small congregation in Massachusetts, he stood up and began to preach sinners in the hands of an anger God, and he described about hell and what it was like. He talked about how horrible it was and how hot it was and the fires that burned and how sinners would go there one day if they didn't have Jesus as their Savior. The way the story is told is that there were literally people in the congregation that were gripping onto the pillars of the church because they were afraid that hell was going to open up and swallow them whole because of their sin. Historians have said that this was the spark that started the first great awakening in America. Contrary to popular belief, America was not at this time some amazing Christian nation. Decline, spiritual decline had taken place in 1741 all across America. Churches were, um, were sparse and far between. Our country hasn't really, wasn't really founded yet, and so at this point, there were still colonies in different places, and, and, it, and with Jonathan Edwards, what um, he was dealing with is, as he was coming to the pulpit was he was preaching to really a small group of people in a, uh, in a country, in a land that didn't have very much hope for its spiritual future. 
America was founded on the premise that, that people needed religious freedom, and today we stand up for that and we cheer that. Uh, right now, even, if anything has taught us anything, 2020 has been a great example uh, of how churches in America still believe in religious freedom. Uh, there have been pastors, specifically in states like California, that have been fined thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars because of their convictions. And many, uh, praise the Lord, many of them are winning those cases now and are seeing um, uh, those fines disappear. In fact, what's been exciting to me is how many pastors I've talked to that have said that their giving went up throughout the year of 2020, not down, even though their congregation wasn't able to meet on a regular basis or give the way they normally did. That's an incredible testimony. But what's sad about it is that a pandemic had to happen for that, to, that change to take place. That religious liberty had to be threatened in order for people to... Um, get into gear, so to speak. And why is it that in Christianity it always takes us coming to the edge of losing everything for us to wake up and realize how important what we had really was? And Jonathan Edwards stood up in a church in a place that didn't have a lot of hope. And for the congregation, I can imagine in my mind's eye that they didn't expect anything different was going to happen that day. It was a normal Sunday. They were coming to church like they always did. They sat in the pews that they always did. Life went on as normal. Now, Baptists, we, we have our seats, right? Uh, everybody here, you know, when you come to church and somebody is sitting in your seat, well, you know, you might just, you might leave the church over that. I mean, it's really serious. You start having, scheduling meetings with pastor to talk about excommunication, even though that's not something really we really believe in. But you're like, pastor, can we try to get this on the books? Because I think this person needs to go. Uh, we like our seats. In different churches, they have um, people, it used to be back in the day, there's a, there's a wonderful church in New York City, and they actually have numbers on all of the pews. And this is the, the true story. It used to be that in certain churches, there would literally be locks on the pews. And when you would walk into the church, you would pay for your seat. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine having to pay for the seat that you have right now? You say, Brother John, I do pay for the seat that I have right now. I show up an hour and 15 minutes early to church every day so I can get it, and I have to listen to the choir practice every single time. And I'm paying for it, Brother John, I tell you. (laughs) Now, our choir does a great job. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, this church, it was a normal Sunday morning for them. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything fancy. But for Jonathan Edwards, it wasn't that way. You see, Jonathan Edwards had been spending months begging God for change. Broken. He would spend hours a day asking God to do something. And when he stood up, he was broken. And he knew, he knew that this wasn't going to be a normal Sunday. Because God had given him a message to deliver that would change the lives of the people sitting in that congregation forever. Next week, we have a revival meeting scheduled. It's almost a silly thought, isn't it? We're going to basically put on our calendar when God will work, right? (laughs) Uh, We say, God, all right, here you go. You get these, these four and a half days, and that's about it. Uh, and uh, we have evangelists coming. These evangelists, they travel in ministry and they preach in different churches all over the place. Truth be told, they'll probably be preaching messages they've preached before. The Lord might lead them to 
prepare something different, but I know when I travel in evangelism, um, I would often preach the same messages because congregations needed the same thing for the most part. And as they come here, I simply wonder this question. If they show up next week and revival breaks out in our church, will you be surprised? Will you be like the congregants of Jonathan Edwards Church who sat there on a Sunday morning and thought it would be a normal routine day? Everything would be normal, it would be the same. Or will you be like Jonathan Edwards? who knew that that day would be anything but normal and knew that God was going to do something, although I'm sure he didn't understand exactly the magnitude of what was about to happen. Tonight, as we look towards next week, we, it's so easy to just focus on the routine. They say that every single circumstance in your life that is out of your control is in the will of God. And I've got to be honest, as a first-year teacher at Ocala Christian Academy, I've begun to question that statement a little bit. When I was told a couple weeks ago, and I just didn't look at the schedule, I guess, but when I was told a couple weeks ago that we basically had a week of revival um, with an evangelist in the school, and then, we had a break, and then we had a preparation week for Spirit Week, and then we had Spirit Week, and then we had another full-on revival meeting, I thought to myself, I don't know who put this calendar together, but somebody made a terrible mistake. They obviously didn't understand my schedule and my needs before they put this in there. I think I need to go have a talk with someone. And there are many teachers in the room right now who are silently saying amen for fear of losing their jobs. (laughs) But the reality is, is that God has orchestrated this revival meeting, whether it's convenient or not, for such a time as this. And so as we look forward to it, I wonder tonight, will we be prepared? As we look at this passage, first of all, we see that proper preparation for revival simply starts with a hopeful promise. A hopeful promise. In verse number 5, Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves. Why? For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The nation of Israel had a great task among, uh, in, in front of them. They were given the job of going into Canaan and conquering the promised land. This was mind-boggling for them. If you go back and you think about the history of the nation of Israel, Abraham and Isaac were dwelt in, in, in Canaan originally, and then they had... Um, uh, left with, with Isaac and, um, and J- excuse me, Jacob and his family when Joseph had been sold into slavery and God knew that a drought was coming and so he had, he had prepared Joseph ahead of time. His brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We remember that part of the story. And, um, and God had brought the, the, the children of Israel or the children of Jacob out of, um, out of Canaan and then he brought them over to Egypt and, and created this safe harbor for them. Well, as time went on and they began to grow, uh, Joseph died and suddenly new kings and pharaohs began to reign in Egypt and they didn't remember Joseph and they didn't remember that pharaoh and, and the favor that he had towards them. All they knew was that for some reason the children of Israel had the best land in Egypt and they were growing as a population. So they did the thing that any power-hungry dictator would do. They decided to put them into slavery and bondage so they could kind of keep control of the situation. 
The nation of Israel continued to grow, and, and at that time it wasn't a nation, it was just a, simply a people group, a Jewish people. They began to populate and, and grow, and eventually God raised up Moses, and Moses led them out of Egypt, and he led them to, to Canaan. Why? So that they could go in and they could enter the promised land by faith. And that group of people saw incredible things. They saw um, God literally feed them with manna from heaven. They saw God roll back the, um, the Red Sea and allow them to walk through on dry land. And then as they came through, bring the sea back together to destroy all of the Egyptian soldiers. Unbelievable things they saw God do. And Moses, one of the greatest leaders of all time, probably, um, who was over them, the lawgiver, Moses, God's chosen person to lead them into the promised land. And then at Kadesh Barnea, they failed. Because of their unbelief, the, you know, the little children's song, we, we sing it in church. Uh, Twelve men went to spy on Canaan, ten were bad, two were good. And two men, um, Joshua and Caleb, had faith, and the other ten didn't, and they um, uh, got everyone to believe against this Moses and against this plan that God had to go into the, the promised land. And this is crazy talk, and now you have a new generation. A new generation that's standing on the precipice of doing what the old generation was going to do, but the problem is, is that it's still just as difficult. The Canaanites are great, they're big, they're strong, they're massive. They have all of the same things that they had before when the other generation couldn't take it. And so what makes us think that we're any better? But yet at the same time, they know the price of their unbelief because they've seen their fathers and their mothers and their grandfathers and grandmothers and their, their families and uncles and cousins and anybody that was from a previous generation, they saw them die because they had to die before the new generation could enter. And so literally this generation, every single person in their family that was older than them, that had been part of the, the original failed attempt, had passed off the scene and they didn't want to see that happen again. And so once again, they were given a promise. Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give unto them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. God had given them a promise. He said, as I was with Moses, Joshua, I will be with thee. And the promise that I gave to Moses to be with him and lead him into victory, I will give to you and to this people. We live in a time when men doubt the hope that great revivals and awakenings can happen. I meet people all of the time that have sort of this mentality of, well, you know, brother, we're just going to kind of hold on to the end. Listen, Jesus is coming back. The world's getting bad. I mean, things are just going wrong. I can't imagine it getting any crazier than it is right now. And so we're just going to kind of, uh, you know, buckle up and get ready. And who knows, Jesus will probably be back in the next couple of years and it won't matter anyway. 
I've literally talked to men who would tell you that they don't believe that a worldwide revival is happening. Now, we know we've read the back of the book. We've read the end of the story. We know that um, the truth is, is that men are going to wax worse and worse. We know that things aren't going to just get better, that um, our world's not suddenly going to all turn to Jesus, and, um, and suddenly the politics of the country will change, um, you know, and it'll be uh, this unbelievable millennial reign just in the middle of, of, of our, our time. That's not going happen we understand that but may I simply say one thing today is that just because the world will end one day doesn't mean that we have to live in a defeatist mentality that revival can't take place in our churches anymore and we can't live with a mentality that just because public school isn't teaching anybody about Jesus that nobody wants to hear or that suddenly the gospel doesn't work since when has God ever needed a couple public school teachers to get the gospel into the hands of teenagers? Since when has God ever needed a couple of government officials to change a country or change a people? In fact, if I remember correctly, the children of Israel is a really good example of God completely circumventing what the government says and doing what he wanted to do with his people. And so tonight, my, my friends and my family... I want to just simply challenge you tonight that the promise, the hopeful promise of revival in today is still just as true as it was 2,000, 4,000, 5,000, 100 years ago. And if you don't believe that, we see God's promise all throughout Scripture. In 2 Chronicles 7:14, the Bible says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Zechariah 10.1 says, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so that the Lord will make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Well, you may say, well, those promises are for Israel, Brother John. They're not for us. We're part of the church. God promised 2 Chronicles 7.14. Yeah, preachers say that all the time. Well, that was a promise to Israel, the Israelites in the temple. That's not to me as a Gentile living in America in the modern church. Well, then let's go to the New Testament and look at God's promise of revival. James chapter 4 and verse number 8, the Bible says, Draw nigh to God, and He'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. In Acts 1.8, it says, But ye shall receive power. Ye shall receive power. The Greek word there is the word dynamo. It means explosive energy. Power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus said in John 15, 16, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and I have ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. Listen, my friends, today, no matter how dark the media might paint the world, no matter how bad it might feel when you look at churches all over the place, and you look at your families on your street, and you hear about what's going on in your local um, community and area, and you see people at your job, I just want to simply say this today, is that the promises of God are just as true today as they ever were. Amen. The gospel works just as well today as it ever has, and prayer is still something that God can use to change the world. And it doesn't matter who you are, but God can use you. Tonight, don't give in to this feeling, this lie from the devil that, well, 
We're going to have a revival meeting next week, and it's just going to be the same as it always is. We're going to hear some good preaching. Somebody's going to get up, and he's going to um, preach the Bible, and God's going to work in my heart a little bit. And I'm probably going to go to the altar, and maybe I'll get something right. And then I'll kind of go back to my life the way that it was before. And I'll wait until the springtime when we get the next revival meeting, and we'll do it all over again. You see, if the world is ever going to change, we have to change first. And so if we're tired of the fact that our church sits the way that it always has for the last five years and 10 years and 15 years, then maybe the reason that nothing's changing is because we're not changing. You see, I'll tell you a secret about evangelists and evangelism. The most frustrating thing in the world in evangelism is to go and preach revival truth and to preach about getting right about sin and to preach about dealing with things and what ends up happening is people only deal with surface issues and then they oftentimes when it comes to heavy things say hey that was so good brother I appreciate you saying that I know this person that could really use that I'm going to buy your tape or get your CD or send that over to them you see I've said this before but it's just so true it's me it's me it's me oh Lord standing in the need of prayer And until we have that mentality that we're going to come into a revival meeting and say, God, whatever it is that you need to do in my heart, whatever sin that is that I need to deal with, whatever thing that needs to change in my life, no matter how extreme you can have it, then we're not going to see revival. It's not going to happen. I was preaching in... um, I'm forgetting the name of this place. I was preaching in Virginia. Um, it's in Richmond. There we go. I was preaching in Richmond, Virginia at a small church, and we were doing the war there and our youth ministry. And um, as we came to this church, it was interesting because they, it, Richmond is an interesting place. We were excited about the opportunity because where this church was located, it was surrounded by neighborhoods and public schools, really large public schools. Now, I've told you a little bit about the war, and some of you remember the War of Special Forces and and what we did as we traveled, and really this was what I could say would be prime territory for what we were going to do for recruiting. When we travel with the war, we bring two Bible college students with us, and what we do is we will have them every day throughout the week go out in the community, and they'll often go to schools, and they'll talk to teenagers and tell them about this event going on, and then we go preach the gospel to them. And uh, these guys will go and they'll, they'll you know, um, uh, get names and phone numbers and they'll sign up people and register them all over the place. And, and so really a great opportunity for us is typically if there's a school, you know, there's oftentimes there's kids walking home from school and then there's, there's sports practices and there's things that can, we can do where we can go and find kids. And, and really this church was just in the middle of probably six different huge public schools, high schools and middle schools. And when I say huge, I mean two, 3,000 people a school and there were six of them within maybe two miles of this place. And all of those schools, whoever did this, I don't know, I don't know how the church even still has the property. I would imagine it's worth a ton. But, but wherever the, school, the church was, is there were just neighborhoods on the back ends of all these schools just surrounding it. So there were all these kids that would walk home every day from school, thousands of them from all of these different uh, places. And then not only were they walking home from school and they were close to the church, but because the neighborhoods were right up against the church, it would be nothing for these kids to just walk to the church. And not only that, but when we scheduled the meeting, Pastor, we actually scheduled it for 10 days instead of a week. So we had three extra days of recruiting time. We were excited. This was going to be amazing. 
uh, we, we were just, we were pumped. It was going to be a blessing. We were, we were ready to go, and we got there, and I cannot tell you how horrible everything went. Uh, I, we had issues with police officers that, that came to us, and we had teachers that were, that were um, against us, and you've heard probably some of the political things that are happening in Virginia right now, and it was kind of like that for us. And so um, literally what ended up happening was one of our guys, they actually somehow went on our website, got his picture, and then the superintendent of the school sent his picture to every teenager and police officer in the entire area and said, if you see this person talking to a teenager, you need to stop him and send him away. It was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. And we finally got to the first night of our rally, and, and we've just, you know, we had such high expectations, and our hopes have just been dashed, and it's a few minutes before the rally, and nothing's happening. Nobody's here. Like, one kid shows up. And this church was excited. It was a small church. They had spent a lot of money to have us come. They, they haven't had anything like this for a long time. They had zero children in their youth group. Well, I shouldn't say that. They had one kid in their youth group who was like a cousin of somebody who came every once in a while. And that was it. That was the, that was the entire youth group. Um, uh, Pastor Reuben, they needed you there. They just didn't know that you existed. So um, uh, that was just, that was the situation that they had. And, and so what we ended up happening was we were there and, and we were just, we were really hopeful that we could see a youth group started and something take place and just, it was, it was bad. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do. I went to my trailer and I got on my knees and I said, God, I need your help. And the first night we had, I don't know, Sweetheart, I don't know if you remember, I think it was like 20 or so kids show up. All of a sudden we had like 12 or 13 children just start playing football in the backyard of the church for some reason. I don't know why. They just thought that was a good place to go play football. So they showed up and we said, hey, how about instead of playing football, you come to our youth rally? And they said, sure. And then they came. And then all of a sudden they had to leave for a birthday party. And then they came back. And it was this crazy night of them leaving and coming. And so we had two teams and one team had all of these kids on them. So throughout the night, that team would shrink to one kid for certain games. And then it would grow back to like 12 for the other ones. And it was just kind of a crazy time. And at the end of the night, I, I preached the gospel and I gave the invitation. We had five young people go back and accept Jesus as their Savior. And to be honest, I was excited about that, but I was a little discouraged because I had such high hopes. We had literally signed up over, I want to say, 600 different names and numbers of teenagers in the area that said that they would be interested in coming. We had texted hundreds of them, and we had maybe 20 on our first night. And then I remember walking into the church the next morning and the head deacon was there and he was talking with one of our team members and he said I'm so excited because we had five people saved last night and I just want you to know that's the most people we've ever had saved at one time in this church in a couple decades since I've been here and all of a sudden God came to me and he said John you need to change your expectation because I'm the one that sets the expectation." my friends, I simply want to say this tonight, is that for this revival meeting, we don't need to have an expectation. We need to find God's expectation. And we need to make sure we do everything we can to not fall short of it. Because there are some of us tonight that are here, and if all of Ocala doesn't end up at Central Baptist Church by Thursday night, you're going to be depressed. <laughs> you're going to say, well, I really thought God could have do something. Now, 
frankly, God could bring all of Ocala here to the church if he wanted to. Um, we could probably put out some political statements with Brother Osborne and everybody would be here. It would be, you know, really quick. Um, but uh, but the, the reality is, is that um, uh, God's probably not going to bring every single person to Ocala to this church. That would probably be an unrealistic expectation. But I would just say I'd much rather have an expectation of God doing something great than having an expectation, well, we had a good meeting. We had a few people come to the altar. You know, I think we had like one or two people saved. And that was it. Just move on with our life. Tonight, we need to recognize that there's a hopeful promise that God's given us on revival, and we need to go after it. Secondly, we see also a holy command. A holy command. Joshua says this to the people. He says, sanctify yourselves. In verse number five. Sanctify yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Because Joshua knew that God was going to work, he called the children of Israel to prepare themselves. Sanctification, the word sanctify is an interesting word. It carries with it two really distinct ideas, but they work together. The one idea is to be set apart. But the other idea is to be clean, to cleanse. And these have different purposes or different aspects to them. One leads to the purpose of the object. Setting apart an object has to do with its purpose. When you set something apart, it's set apart for a purpose. Maybe some of you are in the room today and you have a work truck. And your truck is, is there. You told your wife, you promised her you only bought it for work. And that was the reason you needed to spend $35,000 on a new truck. But, um, uh, but, you know, you bought a work truck and, and you've got it and you use it for work. And that's what it's there for. And you don't let anybody eat in your work truck. Your kids, they want to go and they want to go to McDonald's and they want to get milkshakes and ketchup and, and chicken nuggets and all of that stuff. And you say, you can't eat that in the new truck. Why? Because it's set apart. It's for dad to spill coffee in and dad alone. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's my work truck. It's what I use. It, it, it has a very specific purpose. We're not going to use it for everything else. There's a specific purpose. Uh, you know, some of us in the room, unfortunately, we live in Florida, which is a place where people like to take things that have a specific purpose and see what else they can use it for. Like lawnmower racing. I don't know why anybody thinks it's a good idea. We, we have cars for racing, but somebody was like, hey, you know what, I bet you if I took the engine out of a vehicle and I tried to stick it in a lawnmower, it could go really, really fast, and then we could race it around the track, and people would probably pay to watch this. And the truth is, is that they were right, unfortunately, and now we have lawnmower racing, and it's a thing. Um, now, I, I just, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a purpose to, saying, to certain things. When you sanctify something, you set it apart for a reason. But there's another side of being sanctified. And that's the idea of being clean. The idea of being clean. Right. I, um, I grew up here in Ocala, as many of you know, and the one thing that I learned is that mowing lawns in the summertime is the worst job any teenager could ever have. Um, it's, it's a bad idea. If you're a teenager and you're here, don't try it. I don't suggest it. I suggest you go work at McDonald's. At least it's air-conditioned. Um, <laughs> And uh, unless they make you, you know, work outside the, the thing like Chick-fil-A does, where you're like standing outside of the booth. I, I'm just wondering how many people Chick-fil-A is going to hire in their drive through window until I no longer have to drive through the drive through to get my food. That's really where I'm at at this point. You know, you've got the guy in the drive through window that, that takes your order and then hands the food to the guy standing outside of the drive through window, who then hands your food to your car. 
I feel like we don't need a person to do that, but okay. And, and then you also have like three people now in the line that confirm your order. I literally, I order online and I drive up now and somebody at Chick-fil-A says, hi. And I say, hi, I'm John and I mobile ordered. And they said, great, you're all set, you're ready to go, you can pull ahead. And I pull ahead and about 30 seconds later, another woman comes to my door, makes me roll my air conditioned window down to let the humidity and heat in. And then she says, hi, how can I help you today? And I say, John, I'm mobile ordered. And she says, oh, okay, you're good to go. And then I get to the, the thing and there's another person and we do this routine all over again. And you know what, just literally just make a chain of people and daisy chain the food to me. How about we do that? And that'll be easier. I'll just go park and then they can just all hand it to each other and it'll get to me. Um, now now, I, uh, I grew up here in Florida, and in the summers it's hot, it's terrible, and we, we bought a dog when I was 13 years old named Sushi. Don't ask me why her name was Sushi, I didn't name her. She was this fat little Jack Russell, and, and um, well, she wasn't fat when we got her, but by the time she was with us for a little while, she was very large. And um, uh, Sushi was, was a great dog, and, and I, I loved her, she was awesome. We bought her this awesome little dog dish. And, you know, when I was in high school, I did martial arts, and so sometimes I would try to work out. I know I don't look like it, but I tried, at least, when I was in high school. And, um, and, and I would work out, and I would run, and I would, I would try to run around the neighborhood, you know, or, or, or just jog a little bit. And I would come inside, and I'd be drenching wet with sweat. And I'd come back in, and, you know, what was amazing was I never one time walked past that dog dish of water and thought to myself, I'm thirsty. And that cabinet with glasses in it is a really long way away. I mean, I'm pretty sure I pulled a hamstring just walking up the steps to the front, front door, you know, so I think I'll just, I, nobody's looking, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and get down here and grab this dish. And, but no, no, that never happened, you know, it never one time did it ever cross my mind. I'm completely okay with walking a few more steps, getting to the cabinet, opening the cabinet up, pulling out a glass and, and drinking it. Why? Because the glass is sanctified for that purpose and the dog dish isn't. Now, there were some times, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell on myself and my family here, we're pulling back the curtain, there were some times when we didn't wash our dishes, and the only glass left in the sink, or the only glasses left were ones that were in the sink that were dirty, and they weren't really that clean, you know what I mean, where there was a lot of stuff left on those glasses, you know, maybe I had like V8 juice that morning and that was what was there, and you know what I did? I still washed it. I did. I, I still, I went up there, I looked at it, and I thought to myself, I'm just not, no, I'm, I'm not going to, there's standing water in that, and I'm pretty sure there's mosquitoes flying out of it already, so I'm going to wash it. And I just picked it up, and I would, I would run the water, and I'd wash it. Tonight, to sanctify yourself simply means to set yourself apart for a purpose and to get clean. And as we conclude this message, I just simply want to challenge you. Are you sanctified tonight? We've all been sanctified in Jesus. It's an amazing thing about salvation. But tonight, have you cleansed your hands? Have you cleansed your heart? See, James says in that promise, it says, draw nigh to God, but there's a condition that comes along with that. There's a command that comes afterwards. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. Why? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. David said in the Psalms, he said, he that, um, um, he that ascendeth into the hill of the Lord needs to have clean hands and a pure heart. And so tonight, as we enter this revival, this would be a great time 
to come to an altar before the revival ever starts and to go ahead and start the revival in your heart and say, God, tonight I want to get prepared. I want to sanctify myself because tomorrow the Lord's going to do a wonder among us. And I don't want to be surprised. I want to be expecting it. Let's pray. Father in heaven.